this recession has been a very interesting one because like the fears of recession has been ongoing since maybe 2022 whereby mm-hmm. we saw a huge um, drawdown in the stock market and when we look at the data from last year to this year um, the, the economy actually did not string as bad as what the stock market is doing You're listening to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast, the show where personal finance is about the person, not just the numbers. Here on BFF, we talk about how to make money your best friend so that you can have the freedom to make the most out of life. We go through the honest discussions about money so that you don't need to make the same mistakes. We demystify jargon so that no one can smoke you with complicated acronyms. After all, money's greatest value is to give us control over our time, which is truly our greatest asset. I'm your host, Junus Yu. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast. So today we wanted to talk about the recessionary forecast for 2023, given that you know we see a lot of it in the media. And we have Thomas Chua, the founder of SteadyCompounding.com. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here to share my thoughts. A quick one for those who might not know you. How do you decide to start Steady Compounding? Um, I've always been um, interested in the idea of investing, largely because I came from a family whereby all my parents and relatives, they don't really know how to manage money. So at a very young age, when I first discovered the whole idea of compounding your money, and I became very engrossed with this idea. But I actually did not went into the financial industry right off the bat, mm-hmm. right? So um, back then, because of my family circumstances, I took on the government scholarship. Mm-hmm. I worked for the government for a while. But once my bond ended, that was when, uh, you know, I left the job and then, you know, went into steady compounding full-time. You know, mm-hmm. I started to write full-time and that's where, um, you know, people get to know about my investing philosophy, um, read my business breakdown, so and so forth. But before... I started this steady compounding uh, when I was still working for the government. Uh, I actually started writing one or two years. So it wasn't like a sudden thing. It was after I found out, you know, there was a lot of people reading and, you know, I could actually just keep on doing this for life. And Mm. and that was when um, I decided to do this full time. Mm, Got it. So given that we're talking about, you know, the the fears of recession today, and I guess like every day we just go on to CNA, there's always this talk about, you know, whether or not the recession is coming or is it going to be in late 2023 or early 2024. So in in August, JP Morgan actually scrapped their recession call amongst growing optimism. So first of all, what are the indicators globally that point to a recession? So technically, a period of economic decline during which trade and industrial activity is reduced for, I think, like two over two quarters, I think that is what is called a technical recession. And I think there's also the waterfall effect where, you know, we can see that, you know, as recessions, you know, in a recession is accompanied by a higher unemployment rate and that leads on to job losses, which then leads on to inability for people to purchase as they used to, which then affects earnings potential. Yeah, so um, this recession has been a very interesting one because like the fears of recession has been ongoing since maybe 2022, whereby mm-hmm. we saw a huge um, drawdown in the stock market. And generally, when it comes to the stock market, they always act in advance of what is happening, right? It's a leading indicator. And when we look at the data from last year to this year, um, the 
the economy actually did not string as bad as what the stock market is doing. And when I'm looking through a lot of earnings call, um, especially when it comes to MasterCard and Visa, because they are sort of like the payment backbone of the entire economy, right? Mm-hmm. Except China and um, India, the, the rest of the world basically run through their payment rails. And they have a very good um, overview of what consumer spending has been like. So, so like transaction volume, Yeah, and they have a breakdown of every single sector. So from mm. the travel to retail products to everything. So when they are reporting their financial results, actually gave me a very good overview of what the economy is doing. Mm. And in the most recent quarter, both MasterCard and Visa actually saw that um, consumer spending power is still holding up extremely strong, especially in the traveling sector. But there are signs that the traveling sector is actually about to pick, like the revenge traveling. Mm. It's at its already peak and it is likely to either you know go sideways or maybe trend downwards, go back to where the normal is. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just pre-COVID levels. Like the pre-COVID, like mm. how much people used to travel because like right after COVID, everybody wants to travel. Yeah. So we saw a surge in that area. And this was also echoed by what, you know, management of booking or Airbnb is saying. They say like it's very likely that the peak traveling season is going to end soon. But they're still seeing some signs whereby, especially in the American economy, not everybody has gone back to office. Mm. And when you have like maybe a three-day work from office two days were from home arrangement um, there are still quite a bit of people who are travelling to other cities over the weekend so they are still seeing um, booking holding up pretty strong there but the general consensus is that um, consumer spending is actually recovering um, even outside tourism the sector and for tourism itself it's likely going to trend a bit downwards and then when we turn to the retail side of things like mm. maybe look at Target Walmart Costco mm. um, likewise the management actually said that um, in the past two to three quarters maybe inflation sort of have come under control like mm. they're not seeing price increases anymore mm. and as a result they are also starting to see consumers spend quite a bit more mm. um, as opposed to the start of this year or late last year whereby consumers were you know reholding their spending a bit because they are they were afraid of a recession of inflation so and so forth mm-hmm. but come the most recent quarter most of the companies even the banks are saying that most of the consumers um, their spending are still holding up strong Mm. And, and you know the likelihood of a recession while it's still there is becoming smaller and smaller right but you talked about like Target, Walmart, Costco I mean and these are usually like you know if you look at the price point right. it's like mass, mass market right? right whereas if you look at more consumer discretionary like luxury goods sometimes travel yeah. I mean we talked about travel a bit those are the ones that, that take a hit right are you are you seeing that in that higher spend kind of segment yeah I, I think that's a great question for the traveling wise it is still coming off very strong um, but when it comes to the luxury sector there's a few tiers right so that's the super luxury that's where our Hermes Louis Vuitton come in mm. um, those are still having record sales right mm. and we saw that um, for this like really top tier luxury sector while we like to I, I mean when I first started I thought that they would be cyclical when the economy goes down people spend less right but when we look through um, the past recession like maybe 2008 for example people don't stop spending in these top tier luxury products um, for a good reason right because Louis Vuitton if you are really looking at the most wanted products or Hermes mm. Louis Vuitton have a 3 to 6 months waiting list then yep. Hermes have a 2 years waiting list mm. and then for our Ferraris or this there's also a 2 years waiting list um, so whenever like um, these ultra rich they are generally not that affected by economy 
economy pullbacks. Mm. Um, in fact, if anyone pulls out from the waiting list, there's always someone else who's there to replace them. So we see these companies to be quite resilient. But on the other hand, those that are stuck in the middle, the brands that are not as well-known, usually those will be impacted should a recession really hit. What would some of these brands be? Michael Kors would be one of them. Um, I think anything outside of Louis, the Louis Vuitton branch of family. So Louis Vuitton, the LVMH family, actually owns quite a few, like um, the Christian Dior, mm. the Tiffany brand, and also Cartier. All these are under the Louis Vuitton arm. But um, brands like Guess, that is somewhat below that top-tier luxury would usually mm. um, get a big cut if um, the economy were to go into recession. Mm, got it. How about for fast fashion? Because we've seen, I mean, obviously Zara, I mean, IE Inditex, you know, obviously has you know done well over the years. I had um, fast fashion brands, I think like S-H-E-I-N, Shine Sheen or something like extremely cheap clothing. I mean, that is like right at the bottom, you know, in terms of price point. But how do you think these companies are doing? Um, I think these private companies, when we look at um, the consumers they have, if recession were to hit and disposable income were to shrink, I'm more inclined to think that they would be somewhat impacted. Mm. For Inditex-wise, um, the companies, they actually performed quite well during the 2008 period as well. Same goes for Uniqlo because mm. Uniqlo is also a publicly listed. Mm. If we were to take reference from there, they actually did decent during recessionary periods. But for Shine and all this, because they are private companies, um, it's harder to have a you know rough estimation as to how they will perform in periods like this. Mm. Although we could look at their vendors and see how much they're processing oh. through. Oh, yes, yes. So, um, you know, payment gateways, I mean, you can see some transaction volume. Payment but, uh, gateways and also... information is not public. Yeah, and also we could look at the Google trend data because mm. like um, Google generally, they do report how many people are visiting this website. And if you look at third-party data like Yeep data, I think, um, you probably can see how many people are going onto all these apps to make purchases. Mm. And just out of interest, what you? How about healthcare? Because that always seems to be quite resilient. Yeah, I mean healthcare, like you mentioned, it takes many different forms. So if it's a company like Parkway, for example, mm. these are way more resilient because good times, bad times. Um, if people need healthcare, they they will need healthcare, and they are willing to pay up for these healthcare services. But for a lot of other companies, um, like Moderna, for example, these are harder to put my finger on because a lot of their revenue comes from the COVID-19 vaccine boom. So Mm. I'm less certain as to whether they will continue to do well um, going forward. And when we look at what uh, Warren Buffett himself uh, is doing over the past few years, there were several times whereby during the AGM, quite a few people were asking him, what what does he think about the pharmaceuticals company? Mm. And he always replied, like, as a whole, they will be bound to do better over time. Because when we look at the return on invested capital of this entire industry, it is in the mid-20% level. And this Mm. is one of the industries whereby it generates the most amount of returns on capital um, when compared across other businesses. Airlines is one of the lowest. Mm. But... Warren Buffett himself, he don't invest in any particular pharmaceutical companies. So in the past, 
when he were to decide to invest in pharmaceuticals, he'll buy the whole lot of them. Because mm. he says, like, I have no clue which one will be a winner, which one will do well. Mm-hmm. But I know as a whole, um, the winner will cancel the loser. And, you know, eventually I will end up better in the future than today. So so he just buy the whole lot. So under healthcare, I mean, pharma is one of the, one of the subgroups, yeah. right? So he just buys the entire basket because the whole thing is like you don't know I mean for, for pharma is rely on that big hits right when you get those yeah. um, um, oh I forget the name now like when your drug is approved essentially right. and that goes through like many really like a lot of stringent levels of approval <laughs> and it's the question of who gets who gets to that stage but the other everyone is pouring a lot of money in R&D yeah. So it's like a, the winner takes all kind of situation. Correct. Like a lot of R&D is going in, but we have no idea which one will go through the three rounds of FDA approval, mm. which is really stringent, right? Um, there, there's quite a few drugs whereby extremely popular, but at the third round, final round, it starts to fail. Then, mm. you know, so it's really very difficult to predict which one will be a, be a winner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about healthcare services when we were talking about anywhere from like hospitals to, to diagnostic chains to clinics, to pri- like primary to tertiary care? Yeah, I, I think when it comes to hospitals, um, we are able to see that not all private hospitals will do well. Hmm. Like within Singapore itself, generally it is the Parkway hospitals that do really well. When we look at the other private hospital, I can't remember the, what's the one at Farrow Park, but generally the occupancy and all that isn't holding up um, very strong. And while they can and you know, uh, get themselves built at a very good location or they can come up with the best facilities. But when it comes to a lot of these hospitals, it is difficult to emulate the soul of the hospital, right? Because when mm. it comes to maybe Orchard, Mount E, for example, mm. it is not known just for, you know, as a very popular place where people seek medical attention, but it's also where all of the best doctors reside. And, you know, there's a tendency for people to know that place as a one-stop shop. So when it comes to setting up like another new hospital in Singapore, mm. it is difficult to attract all these doctors who have already established their clinics in mm. Maui, for example. And then this is what I see um, a lot of new hospitals. They have a, quite a bit of difficulty attracting all these reputable surgeons, specialists over, right? Right. Because people follow these doctors, right? Yes. They don't really go there for the location, but mm. they go there more because um, for the doctors. It sort of goes to like a like a flywheel, you know, like all the, everybody know that good doctors are within this mm. hospital. So any doctors who go in, they, they sort of like, um, they are sort of like benefiting one another because this place is just known to aggregate all the good doctors. But it's also the referral systems, right? Yeah. Like you said, like the doctors, be it word of mouth or like clinics already, just they always have that relationship with that doctor right so when you analyze hospitals like how how deep do you go into such metrics I, I think a lot of this um, you have to look at how resilient um, the the rental in- because like all these doctors when they are there right they are all renting a space mm. so you want to look at you know the occupancy rate and also like how resilient they are and you want to hear uh, management talk about whether they are turning over but when you look at a lot of these com- uh, hospitals not companies mm. like Mount all this the doctors generally they don't they don't leave that, that place mm. yeah. but when, when we look at um, the other private hospitals occupancy rate generally don't quite match up to what Parkway is able to achieve. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Now sort of moving away from healthcare because we talked about, you know, what are certain sectors that could be deemed as resilient in such a downturn. So we talked about high-end luxury, 
not really being affected. We talked about healthcare, which is often seen to be a, a sector that you know is is recession resilient. Um, what are the other spaces that you look at? I, I think we want to look at um, sectors that are enjoying mega tailwind, like cloud is one of them, for example. Hmm. Um, and other sectors such as like, um, I mean, I, I would be hesitant to go into AI because like that's where all the, all the hype is hmm. at the moment. Yes. But when we look at um, even for digital advertisement, for example, they're still sitting on, on mega tailwind, even though in the most recent year or last year, they have a bit of slowdown because of, you know, the economy. Everybody was a bit more cautious with spending. Mm. But I think the pullback in spending is just temporary. And, you know, the kind of productivity boost or, you know, the kind of returns um, these services can provide is still huge. So um, more of the SaaS universe. The SaaS universe and also like the, the hyperscalers like the AWS, Amazon mm. or just Google Cloud or mm. Microsoft Azure. Across all these players, um, one thing that's very common with what they are saying and also what a lot of their customers are saying is that, um, you know, it's still in the very early innings. Mm. And while they slow down recently, I, I don't think this slowdown will be permanent in nature. Yeah, and I mean, the, the cloud companies that you talked about, like, incidentally, they are also involved in AI in some way yes. or another. Like, yes. I know Google is very aggressively building their AI stack and also, like, pushing take up you know, by enterprises because they're already pushing out their AI tools. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe um, I was listening to Aswath Damodaran yeah. um, and his take on AI and he, and he actually shares the same view where he feels that it's going to uplift the entire industry. There wouldn't right. be like one winner specifically that that takes it because like everybody is going to be able to gain from the productive, you know, additional productivity that may AI tools bring. And another thing that he mentioned in the tech space was mm. that, you know, that, you know, we've seen a lot of layoffs in the tech space, but there actually hasn't been that much of a hit in revenue. So yeah. basically, it's been this whole period of like trimming excess fat yeah. without much impact. Yeah, I, I think earlier in twenty late 2020 and early 2021, they were too aggressive with hiring. And, mm. and there was sort of like a, you know, FOMO, not just within investors, but also within these tech companies. They were afraid like they couldn't hire talent. Mm. Um, and they started to pay like very, very high prices. The salary compensation of tech workers were just going sky high. Mm. I mean, layoff is never fun, but I, I think the mistake the management made was with overhiring and overpaying um, quite a lot of... Um, tech workers mm, got it any other sectors that you like to look at in a recessionary period I, I think apart from those that were discussed I think it's important for investors not to focus that much on the short-term recessionary fears. Mm. Um, I think what's more important is to focus on, you know, between today and 10 years later, which are the companies that would still survive and then we invest accordingly because ultimately um, we are compensated, especially during times where a lot of people are afraid of recession, um, when we are investing in companies that are able to stay strong and continue growing for the very long term. Got it. And I think like we, we covered quite a few sectors and I think that's a good ending note where, you know, if you take the long-term view, like a 10-year view, then basically you, you want to basically invest in the winners in the long in the long term, right? right? And for listeners who want to find out more about what you do, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Steady Compound or you can find me on my website, um, steadycompounding.com. Thank you so much, Thomas, for being on. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
Many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcasts at melisten.sg or at my Instagram at misfitfi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on Me Listen or Apple Podcasts or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from MediaCorp and recorded at Scape Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu, with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time.